You are listening to the Down the Wormhole podcast, exploring the strange and fascinating relationship between science and religion. Our guest today is the director of the Vatican Observatory. In 1978, he earned his PhD in planetary science from the University of Arizona. He was a postdoctoral research fellow, served in the U.S. Peace Corps in Kenya, and taught university physics before entering the Jesuits in 1989. At the Vatican Observatory since 1993, in 2015, Pope Francis appointed him director of the Vatican Observatory. His research explores connections between meteorites, asteroids, and the evolution of small solar system bodies. Along with more than 200 scientific publications, he is the author of a number of popular books, including Turn Left at Orion with Dan Davis and Would You Baptize an Extraterrestrial with Paul Mueller. I'm very excited to welcome Brother Guy Consolmagno to the podcast today. It's great to be here. Yeah. So, uh, you know, when I reached out to you, or I think the first time I really heard uh, you speak was an episode you did um, for, oh, now I forgot her name. I'm also doing long COVID, brother guys. So if I get forgetful, that's one of the reasons why. Uh, on being. Okay. Right. right. Krista um, Tippett. Yes. Krista Tippett that you did with, with her many years ago. And it was really exciting to hear you and, and, um, you know, read a little, I just actually purchased this book, finding God in the universe that you put out in my theology series. And so I was curious, you know, I'd like to start out, uh, for our listeners who are not aware of, if you can talk to us about your journey, you know, what got you interested in astronomy and then that shift to joining the Jesuits? Well, there was a couple of things. First of all, I'm a Sputnik kid. I'm, (laughs) you know, baby boomer. So I started kindergarten the year that Sputnik went up and finished high school the year that people landed on the moon. And during that time, there was a great emphasis that little boys were all going to become scientists and engineers. Uh, Usually the people who said that didn't know the difference between a scientist and an engineer. And of course, it was all (laughs) boys in those days. Uh, But along with that, my dad always loved astronomy. And we had a summer house. I grew up in Detroit, but we had a summer house on Lake Huron. And the sky was dark, and you could see the stars in the summer. And my dad would teach me the brightest ones because he had been a navigator in B-17s during the war. So he knew the bright navigation stars. And then I was given a book, which really, in a lot of ways, changed my life. It was called The Stars. It was a guide to constellations written for kids, but I still use it. Uh, When I teach, (laughs) even university level, I use it. And anybody who wants to know the sky... That's where I would go. The author, H.A. Ray, is the guy who wrote the Curious George books. Oh, So he's a great cartoonist and a great author, and it made the sky come alive. So by the time I had finished grade school, was looking at high school, I was going to be an astronomer. But I knew that the best high school in Detroit was the Jesuit school. Nothing but the best for me, right? And when you got to the Jesuit school, the smartest kids did Latin and Greek, and I wanted to be one of the smartest kids. So I did classics instead of science. Yes. Which turns out to have been really important for my scientific career. Because who knew most of the work you do as a scientist is reading, talking, presenting, and even the data analysis. Where do you learn data analysis? I learned it from the teacher who taught me how to analyze poetry. Mm. Okay. It's really the same, you know. Why this word instead of that? What are the things that jump out and make you go, huh, that's strange. That's where you poke and prod. <laughs> well, you do that to your data as well. Yeah. I went off to Boston College thinking maybe I'd be a Jesuit. 
because, well, the Jesuits were smart and everybody looked up to them and that's what I wanted to be. I wanted to be thought of as being smart. My best friend went to MIT and I was in Boston. And when I visited him, they had the world's biggest collection of science fiction. Hmm. So I immediately plotted, how can I go there to read science fiction? Um, <laughs> I had been the, you know, the editor of the high school newspaper. So I, when I did an interview at MIT, I said, oh, I'm thinking of doing science journalism. Hmm. Who knew that was the flavor of the day that day? Plus, when I looked at what major if I'm going to transfer into MIT, I'm not going to be an engineer. You have to know too much and build things. And I was terrible at that. I'm certainly not going to go from, you know, being a history major to being a physics major at MIT. That's not going to happen. But I saw this major that said Earth and planetary science. And the word planet grabbed me. Planets are places where people have adventures in science fiction books. Hmm. So I checked that off. Only after I was admitted did I find out that that was actually the geology department. <laughs> I'm going to be spending my entire time looking at rocks. You know, what could be worse? But there was a class on meteorites. Hmm. And I jumped. Oh, the professor who taught me meteorites is just this charismatic exciting guy. I you know, get out of bed every Tuesday and Thursday, thrilled that I got to go to Dr. Lewis's class on meteorites. And from there, I discovered I was actually pretty good at computer programming, pretty good at data analysis, and pretty good at the science stuff. The thought of being a Jesuit I left behind. I wound up at the University of Arizona as one of their first graduates in planetary science. It was a brand new field. There had been nothing to study 10 years earlier. Hmm. So this was a really exciting. And from there, I got a postdoc at Harvard. And then from there, I got a postdoc at MIT. And sounds impressive unless you're in academia. And, you know, two postdocs <laughs> means you couldn't get a real job. <laughs> so at this point, I'm 30. And my Jesuit background that, that Jesuit high school, they had you know, snuck a conscience in there someplace. And I'd wonder, you know, why am I doing astronomy when people are starving in the world? Hmm. And I didn't have an answer. You know, just suddenly made it all seem useless. So I left MIT, I quit astronomy, and I joined the Peace Corps, thinking that maybe I'd do something worthwhile for starving people. And they sent me to Kenya. And after getting a good look at me and seeing how hopeless I was, you know, among real people, <laughs> they sent me to the University of Nairobi to teach astrophysics to grad students. Wow. But and I have all cool. of, yeah, I could have been doing that in Boston, right? Yeah. <laughs> but, but what it did mean was that I was there with, you know, 79 other volunteers who were teaching in the real Peace Corps out in the countryside. And every, uh, every weekend, I'd go and visit them and bring the little telescope that I brought and, you know, a bunch of slides that you could project to tell stories about astronomy. And I discovered even in rural Kenya, people wanted to look through the telescope. They wanted to know what was NASA discovering. They wanted to know what are those things overhead? What if people talked about it? Can I do that? Hmm. And that's when I realized that's why we do astronomy, because it feeds the part of our soul that also needs feeding. You know, we don't live by bread alone. I, I'd read that someplace. <laughs> that eventually, first of all, got me a teaching job, and I discovered I love teaching. So after four years of teaching at a wonderful small college, 
I thought, I could, as a brother, you know, I'm 40 years old, maybe too old to be ordained, but I could be a brother, a Jesuit brother, teaching at a Jesuit school. And so I entered the Jesuits with that in mind, that here I can be doing something bigger than just my own career. I can be doing something that I love, doing something that I'm actually pretty good at, and something that I can see the purpose for. Instead, the Jesuits, who have this, you know, three vows, poverty and chastity, I'd been living those lives anyway. But obedience was the tough one. Under obedience, rather than allowing me to teach at a school like, you know, Fordham or Boston College, under obedience, they ordered me to go to Rome, live in the Papal Palace, do full-time astronomy at the Vatican Observatory, look at that boring scenery out the window, eat that terrible food, and, oh yes, <laughs> take care of the Vatican's collection of a thousand meteorites. Remember meteorites? Yeah. Remember how I was so thrilled to be touching meteorites? They had me doing that since 1993. In 2015, again, under obedience with no input from me, they made me the director of the place. And what can I say? I've been having the time of my life for 30 years. Wow. Where, where does the Vatican get meteorites from? Donations. Um, huh. In particular, there was a nobleman in the 19th century, the Marquis de Mouin, who was a collector, and the way he collected them was the good old-fashioned way he bought them from dealers. <laughs> and he had connections through France. He had one of the largest private collections in the world by the 19-teens. And he donated part of it while he was alive, and his widow donated the rest when he died. Maybe she just wanted to get them out of the basement. I don't know. <laughs> That's just, wow. yeah. I... um so obviously in your bio, I saw that you were in the Peace Corps and I knew that in reading um, through your My Theology book, the, that series. But um, so I was in the Peace Corps oh. as well. Um, I, I sadly, I was only there for five months. I was stationed in Jamaica. It was right after I finished college. And so I um, went there in, in uh, July of 2000 um, and had to be um, sent home because I started having a lot of knee problems and they sent me back to DC and operated on both my knees. And so, but it ended up working out for the best because I was actually dating my now wife at the time who was still at university in uh, UNC Chapel Hill. And I went to NC state. And so it, you know, it, it's worked out and I'm happy about it. But what I find interesting with, uh, your description about how much you love teaching, you know, I teach future elementary school teachers how to teach science and it's, it's a passion of mine is to teach and what's interesting is prior to the peace corps i mean my mother was a teacher and my dad taught for a little bit while he was in the military and um but i never thought i would become a teacher myself hmm. until i went into the peace corps and they you know i was in like the education aspect of things and one of my responsibilities was to go to schools and uh you know um, hotels and things like that in Jamaica to try to help collect all their plastic bottles to recycle them and help clean up yeah. and do environmental work. And, and so I felt like it was teaching. So when I was medevaced out and had to be medically separated, I decided, okay, maybe this teaching thing is for me. Well, um, teaching is so important to the whole communal aspect of what we do. And this is something that I go into in that, my theology book, um, because as a scientist, you don't do science alone. 
You do it as part of a community of other scientists, which include the scientists in the past, long dead, whose papers you read, and who taught you, and the scientists of the future who you will be teaching. And it's only through big organizations, universities, for all of their problems that we are able to do this so that you don't have one smart guy who comes up with an idea and then he dies and the idea dies with him. And the same is true in religion. You can be you know, a spiritual person. You can be a hermit. You can be someone who has mystical visions. But if you don't have a community of people that you can communicate this to who might be able to tell you, you know, those aren't mystical visions. That was a bad pizza. <laughs> Come on. This doesn't work. You need this big community, including the, the people behind you who taught you and the people be, be, before you to whom you can pass it on. So mm -hmm. teaching is an essential part, just as writing is an essential part mm -hmm. of the work we do in religion, in science. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I'm curious, in, and you, uh, Zach asked about where uh, the Vatican got his collection of meteorites. Um, you know, and the, the video I, I mentioned before, we started recording on the Vatican Observatory website talks about the fact that not many people are aware of the Vatican Observatory. Um, mm -hmm. So can you tell us a little bit more about that, where it's located, you know, what what you do at the Vatican Observatory and a little bit of the history, history yeah. Of, yeah. Yeah. Um, well, we claim to go back to the reform of the calendar in 1582. That was certainly the first time that the popes deliberately hired scientists, in particular okay. astronomers, because calendars are related to the positions of the moon and the seasons, and that's all astronomy. The modern version goes back to 1891, and there were other observatories at the Vatican on and off in between those times. In 1891, Pope uh, Leo XIII had two particular things that he wanted to do. First was to show the world that the church supports science. Why in the 1890s was that an issue? Because 50 years earlier, it wasn't an issue. People think, oh, Galileo was, no, it wasn't the Galileo split. It was actually 19th century arrogant scientists who think that science is going to replace religion and arrogant religious people who thought that they had it all and, and you know, we don't have to look any further. Um, you know, the, the, the warfare of the arrogant is always going to be entertaining to, to see from a distance. Hmm. But in particular, and this is my own little take on it, but I think there's some, some truth behind it. What came out of the end of the 19th century was eugenics. And it wasn't evolution, it was eugenics, the misuse of, of Darwin's theory, that the church was opposed to because it was immoral, in which the popularizers of the day, the H.G. Wellses and the like, thought, well, this is the future. We're going to breed better human beings. And by better, I mean people who look like me, not people who look like you. Wow. Yeah. And so when the church was opposed to it, they said, obviously, the church is anti-science. And look what they did to Galileo, after all. Well, they always say Galileo because that was the only example they could come up with. Um, you know, so before then, who were the scientists? They were either wealthy people who could support themselves or clergymen who had the education and the free time to do science. Mm -hmm. So the Pope wanted to show that the church was not anti-science. The Pope also wanted to show that the Vatican was independent of Italy. Italy had just been unified. The old papal states were no longer but the Pope wanted a national institution that would be a 
recognized by other national institutions, national observatories, and thus de facto saying that the Vatican was an independent country. Well, okay. by the 1920s, a lot of that had gone away. You know, the, the Vatican was recognized as being uh, an independent country. But that sense of having the church embedded in the world of science was still really important. So they made the decision at that point, yes, we're going to carry through with an observatory. And they built new telescopes in the papal gardens outside of Rome, uh, which had finally been given back to the Pope with uh, the you know, Italians recognizing the Vatican. And they did great science there, especially measuring the spectra of pure metals, the kind of work that nobody else had done because it takes years to do. And, you know, if you're at a university, you can only do the kind of project that's going to get a result quick enough you can get tenure, quick enough that you can get your your grants renewed. Mm -hmm. But the Vatican was in a position to support scientists to do a 20-year project to measure the spectra of all the, the major metals to measure the density and porosity of meteorites, you know, the kind of project I've been doing for 20 years. In the 1980s, light pollution meant that even the telescopes built out in the countryside outside Rome were useless. Light pollution is the bane of all astronomers, Mm -hmm. along with now satellite pollution, all those constellations of satellites being put up. So... George Coyne was a director then. He had connections at Arizona. I actually knew him when I was a grad student there. And George decided that we would move some of the astronomers to the University of Arizona where they could use Arizona's telescopes. And then a guy named Roger Angel came up with a new idea for making telescope mirrors, made one such mirror, gave it to George and said, if the Vatican will build a telescope around the Arizona University's mirror, We'll share the telescope. So that's why we have a telescope now in southern Arizona with a phenomenally good mirror made by an angel, namely Roger Angel. (laughs) (laughs) How perfect. And there's a dozen of us to this day from four continents, speaking 12 languages, working in every corner of astronomy, interested in everything from cosmology to cosmic dust. Wow. And so do you primarily live in uh, the site in Italy or Arizona or both? There, there, there are a dozen of us and we're kind of evenly split. Okay. Mm. My official residence, according to the Jesuits, is Castel Gandolfo. And okay. I even have a Vatican passport because I'm an officer of the Vatican City State. But I also have U.S. residence in Tucson. And half of the guys, the ones who are more likely to be using the telescope, are the ones living in Tucson. Okay. Okay. Hmm. So another question I was curious about, something I reached out to a a good friend of mine and said that we were meeting with you today. And he had a a great question, especially around the book that you wrote, uh, Would You Baptize an Extraterrestrial? And so we were curious if we could discuss, you know, what are your thoughts on the likelihood of extraterrestrial life? and, And if it does exist, what implications could this have for Christian theology? There have been books written on it. And uh, I can't possibly replace a whole length of a book. But I'll give you three little points. The first was, in my master's thesis at MIT, I wrote about the icy moons and showed that they were likely to have oceans, and the oceans could be full of organic chemicals. 
Mm-hmm. Um, number one, my thought, my theories were probably wrong. I was oversimplifying what was going on. But we do know there actually are those oceans, even mm-hmm. if not for the reason I thought there would be. I stopped short of postulating life. In fact, I say in the last sentence of the thesis, I stopped short of postulating life because <laughs> only Carl Sagan did that. And heck, I didn't want to be Carl Sagan. He was just a media guy. Well, he was a media guy who inspired a whole new generation of astronomers, so he was pretty good. Mm. Um, But the idea of life, at least bacterial life, doesn't bother me. I read science fiction if there are intelligent tunas swimming in the oceans of Europa. That would be fun. (laughs) People have talked about life other than human beings going all the way back to Scripture. Uh, you'll find various odd phrases that nobody quite understands in Genesis, you know, referring to the Nephilim, you know, and Cain went off after Cain and Abel and we managed to have a family. You know, how did that happen? That's if you're reading that as, you know, a literal history, which you read it carefully, you realize it was not intended to be a literal history. But it shows that the people writing it were not afraid of the idea that there would be intelligent creatures. Angels are intelligent creatures. Again, if their metaphors are literally true, doesn't matter. The point is, there's nothing in Scripture that says we are the only creation of God. You find places in the Psalms of the prophet Baruch where you hear uh, this wonderful image of the stars shouting for joy at their creator. Mm-hmm. And the real message is that stars are not gods. You know, stars were created by the one God. But it also means the people writing that didn't think that the human beings are the only people at the top of the heap. So there's nothing in our theology against it. And in my own belief, um, I'm a science advisor to the SETI Institute, whose job is to look for life, especially intelligent life. And it's a real scientific institute with 100 scientists who are being funded to do the kind of research you need to do to understand life if we ever do find it including looking for exoplanets, including studying the atmospheres of exoplanets. If you came to me as someone at the Vatican Observatory saying, "Um, I want resources to look for life on another planet, and you give me a project that sounds like good science, be delighted to fund you. We've done that. We've uh, run meetings about the search for life. If you came to me and said, I want to study UFOs, because I'm convinced that there are little green men who talked to me last night. Hmm. I'm probably not going to fund that. Uh, Mm -hmm. I don't believe in UFOs. I don't believe in the wackier sorts of things. Now, here's the deal. I could be wrong. I could be wrong on both accounts. I've got my reasons for the way I believe, but I also know I could be wrong. In the meanwhile, with limited resources, I'd fund the one and not the other. Hmm. Right. And I like that you mentioned that you could be wrong. And I, I really, you know, part of my job, not just to teach future elementary school teachers how to teach science, but the way I approach that particular course is to teach them to love science again. You know, we know from the literature that, uh, from the education literature that, um, m- and we know, just know from experiences that a lot of times elementary school teachers are, are concerned about teaching science, you know, and especially mm-hmm. in the United States, they don't teach it as much because of, you know, uh, what's tested. And so I try to start off the semester and then kind of thread this throughout about helping them remember what science is, the joy of science, the curiosity, the awe, the wonder, all these things, which 
was really wonderful to read in this book of the my, in the my, my theology series. Um, one, one of the issues, and this is actually central to a book I'm working on now. With I got I love writing books with co-authors because they keep me honest. So I'm writing this with a historian <laughs> of science named Chris Graney, and uh, the working title is "When Science Goes Wrong." And okay. we're going to be, uh, you know, we've got the text almost ready to submit to the publisher. It should be coming out sometime next year from Paulus Press. Its theme is that, number one, science makes mistakes. Number two, science is supposed to make mistakes. That's yeah. how you learn things. Hmm. And number three, that is its strength, and that's why we can rely on it. Because it's not afraid of saying, I was wrong. Right. The person that you should be most suspicious of, whether it's, you know, somebody you're dating, somebody you're electing, is the person <laughs> who will never admit they were wrong. The person who never knows how to say, I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. And that's essential in life. It's essential in science. Because science not only has a place for saying, here, I was wrong, but also... Uh, an expectation that, yeah, talk about being wrong. When I was at MIT, I was on the sailing team. You know, I grew up in the Great Lakes. I love sailing. Well, the Charles River was pretty filthy back then. You didn't want to capsize your dinghy. I was always scared of doing that. I spent three years sailing dinghies at MIT, and I never capsized. I also never won a race. Hmm. And the one's connected to the other. If you're not willing to take chances, if you're not willing to put yourself out on a limb, you're not going to push push the envelope, as the, the, the cliche puts it. But when you do, you got to be prepared for the fact that sometimes you're going to capsize. Right. And it's miserable, and it hurts. Yeah, But it's necessary. Well, and that's what I do, is I really, because we also have this, this uh, idea, at least again in the United States, is that as teachers, we're not supposed to say we don't know. Yeah. Or, you know, oh, I don't know horrible. the answer or I'm wrong. And so what I try to teach them how to do in that class as well is, is to be willing to say, I don't know mm-hmm. to their students. Right. And I don't know. Let's find out. Take a chance. Yes. Mm-hmm. I always tell them, I said, you say to your, your student, I don't know. Let's find out together. Mm-hmm. Um, but then also, too, you know, whenever we do any kind of um, investigation in the class, I always insist on them making a prediction on what they think will happen. And they always get nervous at the beginning. But I tell them, I care if you're wrong or not. A friend of mine was describing uh, visiting a country in the Middle East where the culture is you never admit you don't know. And asking for directions, you know, they're on the street and they're trying to get to the the such and such hotel. Everybody will tell them an answer, whether it's true or not, because they can't admit they don't know. (laughs) Oh, wow. Yeah, that's tough. (laughs) So how do we apply that kind of worldview to our religious beliefs without verging into anarchy? Um, Well, you know, in my church as a Catholic, we've got this thing called confession. It's so important. It's one of the seven sacraments. Because not only are we going to make mistakes, it's expected that we're going to make mistakes. And realizing that you've made a mistake is a pathway to God. Um, In the Jesuit order that I belong to, one of the spiritualities is the the Lupta. 30 days of silence, which is a program. It's not just you sit around doing nothing for 30 days. There's an actual program of prayer. And the first thing you do 
is to look over your mistakes and your sinfulness, not as a way of beating up on yourself, but as a way of saying, wow, and my friends love me in spite of that. Wow, God loves me in spite of that. Now I appreciate how deep that love is. Now I appreciate that I'm worth something even when I screw up. And in fact, the more that I've screwed up, the more I've had a chance to well, to appreciate that. Huh. So it is a sense of uh, enjoying the mistakes. There was a time I was flying into town and a friend of mine was going to meet me at the airport and he's not there and he's not there. And I call his home and he goes, oh, today you were going to show up? And I go, well, yeah. And he goes, oh, <laughs> guess I screwed up. I'll be there. Hmm. Why can't we just say that? Rather than coming right. up with a zillion uh, excuses, can we yeah. do that with our uh, not not just like our personal morality and sense of being, but our uh, our religious sense, our doctrines, our uh, official church beliefs? Um, there is, this you is can, me coming from a Protestant, you know, right. who just they they throw their beliefs around and change them constantly and then make mm -hmm. new denominations when people don't believe them <laughs> so right we we just have different divisions within our church um ah. you we do and and theology has the ability to differentiate between dogma and doctrine mm. between the truths that we're trying to figure out and the words we use to describe the truths and the words can change because language changes because meanings of words shift over time. I'm young enough to remember when we talked about the Holy Ghost instead of the Holy Spirit. And people decided that ghost had the bad connotations, which they were right, a connotation that wasn't there 100 years ago. Mm -hmm. um, one of the things that drives me crazy about some of the new translations coming out of Rome is they're using English words with meanings that you know are in a dictionary in Rome but aren't really used in the spoken language anymore. Lord God of hosts is one of the phrases that drives me nuts mm. because nobody knows what the word host is supposed to mean in that phrase. It's a meaning that was obsolete by the end of the 19th century, but somebody in Rome thought that it fit. Hmm. Yeah, we, we have to deal with this. We're human. If only they would admit they made a mistake. Right, right. Wow. It's, a lot e it's a lot harder to admit you've made a mistake when there's... Uh, power and responsibility and all of that behind you. Uh, it, um, the easiest way to admit it is if you aren't worried about your own reputation or your own job advancement. Uh, mm -hmm. One of the joys of being a member of a religious order and one of the joys of having gray hair and turning 70 is, you know, who am I trying to impress anymore? Ah. <laughs> Why do I care what people think? What I care is, am I saying something that's true? And if it's not, please tell me so I'll stop saying it. Mm. Right. <laughs> that's beautiful. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I was curious, uh, something we've asked people in the past as well is, do you think there are things that scientists can learn from faith communities? Oh, absolutely. Um, we have so much to teach each other about the way we deal with authority, about the way that uh, we motivate the work that we do. I look back in my life as an astronomer, 
And remember how I said through high school and even going to MIT, what motivated me? I wanted to have people think I was smart. Mm. I didn't necessarily want to be smart. I just wanted to have people think I was smart. <laughs> and, you know, that's a teenager. I was a teenager. That doesn't work when you're in your 20s, I hope. Mm. But there's still, you know, when you're a young scientist, you want the approval of other scientists, at least, you know, the patent you had from mm. your advisor. That doesn't work eventually. Then what is your motivation? Well, I want to show up those guys at Arizona State because they're our big... If that's the reason for doing the science, then the science you choose to do is going to be second rate. And the science and the way you do it is going to be second rate. Mm -hmm. But if your motivation is not oh, beyond, oh, I want to find the truth, is that really going to get you up in the morning? Is that going to motivate you to you know, take the subway into the lab? But if you find joy in finding the truth, if you find joy in discovering cool things that you get to tell your friends who are also in the field about what you discovered. So it's the joy you get from interacting with other scientists and the joy you get simply of discovery, of having that feeling that, in a little way, you've been touched by the creator, that you've had an insight. The motivation is what is really different between my life when I was, you know, grubbing for grants and worried about getting a job and the life I've got now. And you get that from a religious sense. You get that from a sense that following the rules and checking off all the things that I didn't do that were bad is not enough to be a scientist. Getting the answers in the back of the book is not enough for being a religious. Mm. It's also true, of course, that science came out of the medieval universities. And the structure of the way we teach it and the way we analyze it is based on a lot of theology and philosophy. To this day, what's my degree? Doctor of philosophy. You know, what did I get when I got my degree? A black robe that, you know, dates back from the 1400s. <laughs> yeah, I got a, a blue one because I graduated from the University of Virginia in my, my little right uh, picture thing of the <laughs> rotunda. So, yeah. But, <laughs> yeah, but it's, but you're it's, right. it's all medieval. Yeah, those traditions go, go a long way. And as I recall, University of Virginia was maybe the one of the first universities in the world that was not religiously affiliated. I believe that's true. Oh, really? I think so. Yeah, it was yeah. started by Jefferson. So mm -hmm. um, ah. he only believed in one God, and that was Jefferson. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> it was interesting when I was there as a PhD student. I, I took a history of science class, um, and the professor had been there for quite a while, and she's still there. Um, and she had us all call her Mrs., not Doctor. And you know, this was in 2005 and 2006. And so at one one point, someone did ask, you know, we know you have a PhD, why not Doctor? Um, and she said that that was not the original intent of Jefferson, yeah. where he did not want it to be where professors were all referred to as Doctor because he wanted to try to have a more level playing field. Um, for people to have those conversations. And I thought that was really interesting. Yeah, there are, really there are held strong to that. There are schools of like Virginia that, that make a point of that. Yeah, hmm. and I thought that was really neat. Mm -hmm. um, uh, so another one, you know, when I first reached out to you, it was right around the time, you know, that 
we were starting to get images back from the James Webb Space Telescope. Um, and so obviously with that telescope up there and just the, um, we actually had an interview with uh, someone right, and it was, uh, I think we released it like the day before it was launched. Um, and uh, so with that, you know, the James Webb Space Telescope and the amazing images coming back from that and the amazing data, the DART mission that just occurred, I think earlier this week, <laughs> Yeah, you know, there's a lot of really interesting things going on in astronomy right now. And so I'm curious, you know, what what are you most excited about and what do you hope some of these things will find? Like what is it that you wish or that kind of keeps you going with that? Well, for me in particular, I've had this love of meteorites. We're pretty sure meteorites come from the asteroid belt. And we've had two missions recently that have grabbed bits of asteroid and brought them back. The Japanese mission, they've got the samples. But, you know, it's their samples. They're still studying them before they release them to the rest of the world. They paid for it. They, they deserve it. There's another mission, uh, an American-run mission, that went to asteroid Bennu. The guy who came up with the idea of that mission was a fellow named Mike Drake. He was my first thesis advisor. We then, you know, I went off in a different direction. But I knew him from when he was a young professor. Sadly, he died uh, before the mission could be flown. Mm -hmm. The guy who's in charge of the mission now was a student of a friend of mine at MIT. We were students together. Um, you know, everybody, as you can imagine, on that mission, since they're doing the kind of science that I do, they're, they're all friends of mine. Mm -hmm. The James Webb, the uh, cameras were made by a husband-wife team at the University of Arizona. And I knew Marsha when she was a grad student at MIT, so I've known her for nearly 50 years. Uh, the woman who's in charge of the planetary observations is somebody named Heidi Hamill, who I knew as an undergraduate. The DART mission was one of the chief scientists, is a fellow named Andy Rifkin, who I knew at the University of... You know, it's a small world. <laughs> so when I see these missions, I've got these different layers where the spectacle of it that everybody enjoys, I enjoy. The pictures are, gosh, wow, really pretty. And you know, watching this, you know, asteroid moonlit blow up as the dark thing hits it. Yes. There's something visceral and cool about it. Mm -hmm. The science that they're looking for is really fascinating. And mm -hmm. the cleverness of the science, the, 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 one of the unheralded things about the DART mission is they want to see how much hitting an asteroid with a particular spacecraft, you know, how much you're actually going to be able to move it. The amount is going to be minuscule. How can you measure it? If you just hit an asteroid, the amount of change would be so small, there'd be no way to know that anything happened. We did that. We hit a comet with uh, the deep impact mission. We hit it with a, you know, a copper cannonball about 20 years ago. But they chose a moonlet of an asteroid because while you can't measure the position to a really high precision, you can measure the orbital period. Hmm. And so by seeing how the orbital period changes, even if it's a few fractions of a second, you can then calculate backwards how much momentum was added to the system. Okay. It's really clever. So if we had hit just a freestanding asteroid, there'd be no way that we could measure That's what, right. what changed. Because That's what right. it how in relation to what? Exactly. So, 
So we hit a little moonlit, which is a word I just learned. <laughs> this is fantastic. Yeah. Didn't realize that some asteroids had moons. That's pretty cool. Uh, so then we're able to see more precisely. Man, yeah. You met, uh, and, and so the cleverness so, well, of the science is wonderful. Yes, the science we'll get absolutely. out of it is wonderful. And the final level is that people who do it are friends of mine. So I'm really thrilled for them. <laughs> So with, if we could go on just, just a minute with the science of that. So you talked about we'll be able to see the change potentially in the orbital movement of the moonlet. And then you mentioned something about the system. Is Will we be able to, if we see that there is a change for the moonlet, will we be able to then determine that it had an impact on the system at large? Like, Well, here's, here's the problem. Uh, this is freshman physics. I used to teach freshman physics. Let's see if I can uh -huh. still do this. <laughs> um, when there's a collision, two things hitting each other, laws of science are there is conservation of energy, it's one of Newton's laws, and there's conservation of momentum, different mm -hmm. Newton's law. But when you have a collision, the energy can go to lots of places. Now, the moonlit could speed up because it's got more kinetic energy, but there will also be shock waves inside the moonlet that takes up some energy. And there will also be heating of the spot, and that takes up energy. So you don't know where all the energy is going to go. So you can't predict ahead of time how much it's going to speed up just from conservation of energy. Momentum is conserved. But if the two things that collide have a perfect elastic collision, the little guy will bounce off. So its momentum will be exactly in the opposite direction of what it was when it came in. So it will add to the thing it hit twice its original momentum. Huh. The momentum of when it hit and then the momentum of turning, turning around because momentum is a vector. On the other thing, if the thing that came in just got swallowed up and nothing got knocked off, then you'd only have half as much momentum transferred. The reality okay. is somewhere in between because part of it did get, but part of it did throw stuff out the back. And you don't know ahead of time which it's going to be. That's why we had to run the experiment. Okay. But what we learn is not only how much you can expect, you know, because now we've done it, if you're trying to nudge an asteroid that really is on a collision course, but it also tells you something about how is the body put together. Is it a solid rock where things are likely to bounce? Is it a pile of rubble that's going to go and swallow the thing? Is it something in between? Now we know a little more. Or we will when we analyze the data. Yeah. Oh, that's really interesting. How, uh, I mean, I, I, this is the first experiment we've done with uh, planetary protection, so we don't go the way of the dinosaurs. Um, Realistically, how much warning do you think we'd get if there was a planetary threatening asteroid approaching? It, it's the kind of odds that goes back to the earlier question about what are the odds of finding life? You know, <laughs> the farther away you look in the universe, the more likely there will be a planet that has life, but the harder it will be to detect. <laughs> okay. So yeah. that's, that's the trade-off. The sooner we see an object, the more likely it is that we'll find an object that's going to hit, um, the more likely it is that it's going to be something that's going to hit relatively soon, but it will probably also be something that's relatively small. Okay. Okay. And the smaller things would be easier to nudge. 
the golden would be is if we could find an asteroid, you know, a few tens of orbits before it actually hits the Earth. And we have the time to slowly nudge it out of that orbit so it misses the Earth. The Earth is a really dinky, dinky target, <laughs> which is why we don't get hit by big things all the time. But it is a target. We do get hit by hit by small things all the time. People once thought that, oh, the thing we have to worry about is the, the dinosaur killer asteroid. Well, that comes once in 100 million years. The odds are pretty small. We'll see that. But what we really have to worry about are the Chelyabinsk kind of events. This mm. is the, the city in Siberia where yes. a tiny asteroid about the size of a school bus blew up over the city. Yeah. And the shocking thing is not that asteroids blow up when they hit the atmosphere, but that there's a city of a million people in Siberia that I'd never heard of yeah. where this happened to <laughs> occur. A million people. And wow. it reminds us that the human race has covered the, the face of the Earth, and we are presenting a much bigger target of people than we ever had before. So that, you know, a thousand people want to go into the hospital just from flying glass from the sonic boom of this thing blowing up in the atmosphere. Right. Mm. That's the kind of thing that you want to be able to, or something a little bit bigger, something that might hit once every hundred years, like uh, the Tunguska event. That's Oof. the thing that you want to be able to have cataloged and be able to say, okay, we can nudge that one out of the way. Or maybe even better, go up there and you know mine it so that we've taken it apart and you know turned it into space manufacturing. Right, right. <laughs> Yeah, if that Tungusta event had had happened over any population center, that would have been just incredible. The amount of damage that did just to the because that that was in Siberia too, right? That's right. That it yeah. just hit Siberia's an uninhabited, yep, yeah. <laughs> hit some uninhabited place and just leveled the, just tons and tons of space. Well, imagine also if it had happened during the tensions of the Cold War. Oh, goodness. Oh, yeah. And somebody would say, oh, my gosh, it was a bomb, because it's hard to tell the difference. Mm -hmm. You know, it's a sim similar or even bigger amounts of energy. Hmm. Wow. But then <laughs> when, when you say that uh, we could we could mine it for resources, I know that uh, asteroid mining is is a thing that is coming up around the bend, and which is great, because then, you know, we don't need to take all the resources out of this planet, but I can't help but go to uh, "Don't Look Up." Did you Did you see this? I love that movie. Where I hated it and loved it. I hated it because it's so I, true. Oh, yes. I, that movie! I got so angry because of how accurate it was. That it was like all of our best scientists were going to deflect this thing. We're going to get it out of the way. We're going to be safe. And then somebody realized we could monetize it, and then everything went out the window. And now we're going to, you know, safety be darned. We're going to. Yep. Uh, mm -hmm. We're going to get money out of this thing and then that mm -hmm. is the end of the human race and mm -hmm. i i'm a little i get nervous when we talk about corralling asteroids and then mining them in a you know getting them closer to the to the earth is is there is that an actual risk um it, it is it's, it's that's unlikely what is more likely um there have been layers of ideas about how you exploit asteroids. And, you know, the first thought was, oh, they're full of metal. And the metal is full of gold and iridium and, and all these rare metals. And I can be rich. Well, number one, if they really were full of gold and you could bring them back to Earth, you'd ruin the price of gold and you'd go broke. <laughs> oh, yeah, good point. Yeah. But really, 
on further reflection, what there is in the asteroid belt that is far more valuable than gold is water. Mm -hmm. And you say, well, there's water on Earth. Yeah, but we don't need the water on Earth if we're in space. We need the water if we're going to be living in space. Mm -hmm. So yeah. the first thing we're actually going to exploit is the water to be able to make life habitable in space if we become a species that lives in space and doesn't just visit it every now and then. Um, to that end, the idea of corralling it and bringing it close to the Earth was a, a great science fiction idea, probably not practical. It's easier to go to it than to bring it to us. Hmm. Right. Maybe. Well, that makes me feel better. I, yeah. It makes me very nervous to think about all of these moons that we bring in to, to mine for resources. And then, there's, there's, oops. There's, yeah, there's an interesting uh, issue on the morality of asteroid exploitations, because like anything human, we can do it wrong, and we probably will. Mm -hmm. uh, I actually wound up writing an article about that that appeared in a Civita Cattolica, which is this Italian... A journal published by the Vatican with the Jesuits, with Vatican permission, mm -hmm. and uh, based on a paper I gave to the Pontifical Academy of Sciences on the morality. Because it's great that we don't exploit planet Earth anymore. In the meanwhile, what are all the people who make their living you know, as miners? What are you going to do about them in the, in the meantime? It's great to shut down coal mines, but then you've got to do something about the people who live in coal mining regions yeah. mm -hmm. to make sure that you give them a, uh, a soft landing, that you don't just do things willy-nilly because you've got the power to do it. Everything you do has unintended consequences, and it doesn't mean you shouldn't do it. It means that you have to be aware of the unintended consequences. You have to be aware that human beings are going to sin because we make mistakes. Because that's how we learn to go back yeah. to an earlier theme. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. So what is it that you wish, as we're starting to wind down our time together, what is it you wish that everyone knew? If you had the ability to have an impact worldwide on what everyone would know or some, something they could know, what would that be? Even though it would put me out of a job, I wish people knew <laughs> how religious doing science was, how what a deeply religious activity it was, that the people who are trying to tell you that there is a war are generally people who don't know science, don't know religion, and they're trying to sell you something. Hmm. Um, fundamentalists are fundamentalists because they're, they're scared. Mm -hmm. They're afraid that God doesn't love them unless they follow all the rules. Scientists who are, you know, the science popularizers who want to make you think that they're smarter than the rest of us are scared. They're scared that they're going to be found out as being imposters. Guess what? We're all imposters. Anybody who thinks that, you know, that they're an expert is an imposter. But there's one kind of imposter syndrome where you run around scared, afraid that people are going to find out. And there's the other kind of imposter syndrome that goes, I've been pulling the wool over these people's eyes for so many years. This is so much fun. And if they do find out, we'll all have a good laugh about it. Mm. <laughs> um, but to oppose that fear, to be able to have faith that God's going to love you even if you make a mistake, to have faith that I can still be a good scientist even if I screw things up, 
In fact, only if I screw things up and then learn how to recover from it. To get past that fear is essential both to our faith and to our science. If you are a deeply religious person, you find God in the beauty of the universe and in the elegance of the universe and in the logic of the universe. You know, the opening of St. John's Gospel, in the beginning was the word. The Greek was inarche etologos. Remember I did classics in high school? And the Greek word for word is logos, where we get the word logic. In the beginning was logic. The second person is logic and reason. This is where we find God. Likewise, if you are a good scientist, you won't fake your data to get a promotion. You won't fake your data to make yourself famous while you're alive, hoping that nobody notices until you're dead, in which case, who cares? (laughs) If you're a good scientist, you want to be finding the truth. You're in love with the truth. Well, truth is your God. I hope truth is my God as well. The same God who said, I am the truth the way, the truth, and the life. Hmm. So, you know, if you, most scientists today are not atheists. Uh, most of them would either say they're believers or at least agnostic. And of course you're agnostic. Who knows for sure? Nobody knows for sure. But right. you make a choice on the best evidence you've got, always inadequate. Yeah. An atheist, as Carl Sagan himself said, an atheist is somebody who knows more than I do. Because how do you know there's no God unless you have a clear idea of the God it is you don't believe in? And guess what? I probably don't believe in that God either. Yeah, I find that much of the uh, the root of this feeling that science and religion are at odds with each other and that they cannot possibly be you know, together and that science, religion is some regressive um, force that's bringing us backwards in time. And uh, a lot of that comes from personal religious trauma. Yep. And then that person spreads their religious trauma through that teaching and other people pick up on it. And at the root of it is somebody was hurt at some point in their life by a religious institution or person or leader who was told that they are less than themselves. They can't think, they can't use their their mind, they can't question. And they took that and they just extrapolated it outward. And this whole movement that has been going on, I think is just based on religious trauma. And if we in the religious community can just repent, as you said earlier, then I think we could bring us back together, you know? It is curious that uh, the most prominent uh, you know, of the new atheists, as they used to call themselves, were elderly white British males. Mm. Um, yes. And there is something about having a national religion that you know, was forced on you at age 12 that will make you want to rebel. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, unfortunately, a lot of the people who are anti-science have also been traumatized by science teachers who didn't have Ian teaching them. Science mm. teachers who thought the point of science is to get the answer in the back of the book. And that's it. And that's yeah. all that science is. Science has the answer. And when you know that that's not true, you're likely to rebel in the opposite direction. You're likely to then disdain all of science. Right. Wow. So what I'm hearing is there's a common fallacy in both extremes that we've yep. fallen prey to in the modern world. And we need and it, to it, unlearn some of the and enlightenment. It's, it's, and it's a desire for certainty. Mm. It's, 
Uh, because, of course, what we have in the modern world is both the suspicion of authority, so I don't trust anybody who might be able to tell me something, but I insist on having certainty. And <laughs> what happens is you squirt sideways into the dark parts of the Internet. Aha, I have found the secret authority that nobody else knows about, even though it's on the same web page that anyone else could find. And it's my little <laughs> right. private... It's, it's Gnosticism. It goes back to you know, the fallacies of ancient religion. I've got the secret knowledge that nobody else has. Wow. You know, any, any religion that charges you for their secrets is in it for the money. And that's what the Gnostics <laughs> yeah. did. And any science whose first premise is, I, the scientist, am smarter than you, and you'll never know what I know because I'm so much smarter than you. Um, again, that's not science. That's BS. Yeah. Yeah. One of the things I love to tell my students when at the very beginning teaching them about why science is incredible and why it's an amazing thing to teach is that when we do little activities that the reason why, you know, scientists come up with maybe a different answer than what we're coming up with in my class is that they have additional training. But at the end of the day, they started off with this idea of curiosity of wanting to figure something out and that they saw it, they were in awe of it or had wonder and decided, I'm really curious about that. And, you know, let's let's explore this further. You know, I, I, so I cheats them that we are all scientists. Yeah, I love doing that. I love baseball. OK, I grew up as a big baseball fan, Detroit Tigers fan. I love yeah. watching the professionals play. But that doesn't mean that I can't have a good time playing softball myself. Right. And we can all play baseball, even if we can't all be professionals. Mm -hmm. I like that. I love that. Though sometimes as a lifelong Phillies fan, it feels like I could get on the field and do just as well. <laughs> but that's a different episode yeah. right there. Yeah. And we are just about out of time. So <laughs> you, you mentioned you referred to one book earlier. Uh, are there any other things as, as we end our time together, things that you're excited about that you're personally working on or with, with others that you want to share with? Sure. So um, I still get to do science. And uh, this week I'm in Canada. I'll be attending a meeting where I'll be giving a paper on the research we've done on meteorites. And we continue. I still get to play with the meteorites in the lab, even though I'm the director, though we've got a curator <laughs> who, uh, who helps me out because he's actually better at this than I am. Um, <laughs> I've got another book after the What When Science Goes Wrong book, which is tentatively titled uh, The Jesuit Guide to the Sky. And mm. I'll be uh, submitting that to a publisher at the end of next year. So that should okay. be a lot of fun. It kind of models the, the James Martin book, Jesuit Guide to Nearly Everything. And uh, Jim, Martin, Jim Martin and I were you know, friends where we studied together in philosophy classes. So those are two things that I'm excited about because I love writing. I love teaching. I love spreading what's going on. And in the meanwhile, we've got a website. And it's real easy to remember, vaticanobservatory.org. Just spell it all out, Vatican Observatory, as if it was all one word. And that's where you can find a resource where we've got like 500 articles and websites and videos and book reviews on the big issue of faith and science resources that we think are pretty good. Whether I mean, there's a zillion of them out there on the internet, but an awful lot mm. of them are kind of shaky. Not good. Yeah. <laughs> and so this is a resource that I think you know, your listeners would enjoy seeing. 
We also have what used to be called a blog. Well, blogs aren't there anymore. Um, you know, an online magazine, <laughs> if you will, articles that uh, that every few days somebody will post a new article on science or the history of science or you know what's new in science mm. and science and faith. Uh, and it's mm. just a place where you can join a little community. We've got a, maybe a few thousand people who have become uh, members of what we call sacred space astronomy. <laughs> 